0: There's something so romantic about the idea of going against society, of reacting to the social convention around oneself and just saying, stuff this. In modern culture, and probably throughout much of history, the idea of rebelling against the four-lane path of social normality has been celebrated innumerable times. Recent examples Books like On the Road by Jack Kerouac, or films such as Into the Wild, they seem to pop up every generation or so, tapping into the Wanderlust of the times. Speaking to something in each generation that permits fantasies of casting off the shackles of convention, dismissing social norms, choosing a path of one's own making, and jumping into the forever unknown. Every time and place has its different conventions, and different people who, for different reasons, find themselves walking a path of personal and social rebellion. Of course, the situations and the circumstances that generate each social rebel and their actions differ also. Sometimes it is by choice that people rebel against the structures they have grown up with. Sometimes it is by necessity as social beings, we have societies for a reason. We find the social contract more comfortable than the idea of not having one. It gives us a sense of belonging, and social belonging gives us security. It's an age-old conversation. What of our freedoms should we sacrifice in order to be a part of a society? How we collectively respond to this question is what shapes the rules and conventions of of the social structures we grow up with. Once established, those conventions must be constantly reaffirmed and retold. The citizens must be made constantly aware of the need to stay in line. More than anything else, it is fear that keeps people in line with the conventions of their time and their place. Stepping into the unknown encumbers the possibility for anything to happen. The very best, but more importantly, the very worst. Often, we would prefer to never experience the potential very best if it means we also don't have to experience the potential very worst. We are taught that security and assurance in the future are primary concerns that we must indulge. To not do so would be perilous. So, although in fantasy and fiction, We glorify and celebrate the idea of social rebellion, of following one's own path, no matter the consequent friction with one's own society, of stepping boldly into the unknown, no matter how hopeless or fearful that unknown may be. It is usually only in fantasy and fiction that we do this. Because at the same time, we also tell ourselves of the real world, or the real life, of being part of an existence where certain immutable rules determine that social rebellion is pure folly. You hate your job or your studies, and you want to go traveling and live in a hammock on a beach in Thailand, selling handmade jewelry for the next however long. Or you dream of disappearing into the Amazon to delve into ancient shamanic, psychedelic self-exploration. You think about this kind of fantasy every day and can imagine and feel the wonder of what such an experience will entail. But now imagine the reaction when you go and tell your parents or your wife or your husband or your kids that you are about to throw social convention to the wind for the sake of following what you perceive to be your path. There is backlash when you say, Stuff it. And that backlash is built out of the fear of the unknown, because it's this weird contradiction of modern, globalized culture that we both celebrate and condemn social rebellion. Of course, not everybody will condemn it, or not everybody can be tarred with the same brush. Maybe your husband or your wife has such an enlightened love for you and your sense of self that he or she will support your hammock on beach living and jewellery-making desires and give you the room to chase those dreams. Maybe, when you tell your parents that you are about to leave your university studies and go to find spiritual guidance in ayahuasca-sipping ceremonies in Peru, they will hold a big dinner in honour of your self-exploring ways and offer to pay for your plane ticket. Maybe, more likely, of course, is your parents' fear for your safety And sudden lack of assurances in the security of your future will cause them to have a different reaction. They may argue that you can do all of that, but why not save enough money first? Finish school and get some work experience, and then go and follow your heart, because you need the security of the future. Maybe once you've bought a house and paid off the mortgage, gotten married, raised your own kids, and seen them off to school and worried yourself about their future, maybe then you can go and hang out with some shamans in the rainforest. You know, when you're like 62. This is the real-life view. That to have no security, to step blindly into the dark unknown, is to be without hope. To discard any chance for good fortune, for survival, for happiness, or for success. If you go against society, then you go with no chance. This episode's story is about a man who went so wildly against the grain of more than one society, and led a life of such unbelievable non-convention, that from the beginning, he really stood no chance. In fact, in the place where the majority of this story is set, in Australia, There is a common saying that is used even today, 200 years after this man's exploits. This saying invokes his name, and its very meaning is to convey exactly this notion of having no chance, no hope, no room for the impossible to actually occur. In Australia, if you lack these things, or if you are embarking upon an endeavor that nobody has any faith in. If you are going so far against the grain of your society that nobody expects to even hear from you ever again, then what people will say is, you've got Buckley's chance. Buckley's chance, or also to have Buckley's or none, is exactly what William Buckley was seen to have had. It means to have zero chance, no hope. His life mainly during the first half of the 19th century, would wind its way down a path so epically against the grain that his survival was thought impossible. But Buckley did survive, and while his life story gave rise to an expression of the real-life view, Buckley's chance, suggesting that one's outlandish endeavour is pure folly, it's a story that actually better serves as an example of how Going against the grain and forsaking security and convention is not really to cast yourself into the abyss of abject hopelessness. Buckley literally ran away from convention and conviction, and stumbled blindly into the darkness of the unknown. And in the end, it was he and the story of his life that would persevere, long beyond the grumbles of those whose names are instead forgotten, of those who gave him no chance at all. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This is our third story of resistance and rebellion. You've got Buckleys. This episode is brought to you by Brevity. That is all. This story involves... Early European Perceptions of Australian Aboriginal Life and Culture The history of relations between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians is long, complicated, horrific at points, and confusing at others. In the near future, we are going to do a series on Aboriginal resistance and rebellion to European invasion and colonisation, and try to get a clearer picture of this history. However, that is not for this episode these early European perceptions of Australian Aboriginals must be taken within the context of the times. Today, these perceptions would be considered racist, and rightfully so. But from a European male like William Buckley in the early 19th century, they are relatively much less racist than any other number of contemporary sources. So please just keep this in mind. This story is going to focus on Buckley, And so, not do any justice to the story of indigenous suffering under European occupation. That is going to be for another day. And some of the language is going to sound racist, because it's from a time where racism was the norm. Much of what we know about William Buckley's life comes from his mouth, but was written down by somebody else. That someone was John Morgan, who sat with Buckley when he was 72 years old. In 1852. At that age, most of the extreme reaches of his life's experience had passed him, such as that he had fought in one of Europe's most historically significant conflicts, or that he had at one point entirely forgotten his mother language, English, and had to relearn it. This guy's life, according to him, but also somewhat verifiable through various records, was absolutely nuts. It has been argued that the transcript was probably embellished, since it may have been an attempt to make an income for both Buckley and Morgan at this later stage of Buckley's life. Today, though, according to Tim Flannery, one of the more recent scholars on Buckley, most historians agree that it is all likely to be very close to the truth. Buckley was born in County Cheshire, England, in 1780 to farming parents of humble means. He openly said of the early days of his life that given all the tumultuousness that would follow, he actually remembered little. He was one of four, two girls and two boys, but by his adult years, he had no idea what had happened to any of his family. As at a young age, he was adopted to his grandfather, sent to a boarding school, and then at age 15, apprenticed to become a bricklayer. Or, as he gloriously put it, quote, to be taught the art and mystery of building houses for other people to live in. End quote. Respect to the bricklayer. Being a 72 year old man at the time of recounting his life of social rebellion, Buckley is doing so with a solid lens of hindsight. He is also recounting it to this other guy, Morgan, someone for whom, perhaps, Social norms and conventions were more something to be adhered to, rather than resisted. Someone for whom the fantasy of social rebellion carries more weight than the actuality of it. Under the tutelage of the bricklaying master, Buckley became restless, but he does not describe it as a restlessness of the soul yearning to explore. Of it, he says, I was, I suppose not so strictly treated as I should have been as a boy, and hence, restraints imposed upon me by my master and his very proper endeavour to make me useful and industrious were considered hardships and punishments, unnecessarily and improperly inflicted. This feeling in time completely unsettled me, and my uncontrolled discontent mastering my boyish reason when I was about 19... I determined to enlist as a soldier and to win glorious laurels in the battlefield. End quote. So, already you can tell that this story has all the makings of just such a romantic tale of social rebellion and adventure. Young boy, unhappy and restrained by the predetermined nature of his life, harshly treated by his master, throws it all to the wind, and joins the army. In 1799 he went as a part of the King's own Regiment of Foot, also known as the Fourth, to join the growing Allied army in Holland under the command of the Duke of Wellington to take on Napoleon's revolutionary forces. He fought in the campaigns in Holland, was severely injured in his hand, and returned to England. He says himself that he was physically well-suited to be a soldier and should have been mentally as well. Standing at around six and a half feet, nearly 200 centimetres, he was an absolute unit of a man. But it just seems that he could never find a place to truly fit in, and at such an early age, did not know how to stay on the straight and narrow, and not succumb to the incessant urges to tell everyone and everything around him to go and get stuffed. He said of his time in the army that because of, quote, my imperfect education, and early feelings of discontent returning upon me, I unfortunately became associated with several men of bad character in the regiment, who gradually acquired an influence over my conduct, which very soon led me into scenes of irregularity and riotous dissipation. End quote. Can we just pause for just a moment, to bask in the absolute beauty that is the term riotous dissipation? Can we change the name of this podcast? I would love to meet the rebel army declaring riotous dissipation. You there, chaps. What say you for a touch of riotous dissipation? What? Brilliant. So he was a naughty boy after he'd been to fight in Holland and he eventually got caught with a cloth that so he claimed had been given to him by a woman. The authorities declared that the cloth had been stolen. And so now Buckley had to bear the burden of conviction. He was deemed guilty of theft, which in early 19th century Britain was seriously punished. Buckley was first sentenced to work, for an indefinite period of time, in the south of England. It's impossible to know whether he always had a feeling of restraint within his society, only that he tells us about these reoccurring deep feelings of discontent in the life that he had found himself living. He had sought and found adventure when he joined the army, but although he should have belonged in the military, he just found that he could not. He was always a figurative prisoner of society, whichever social structure it was that he was endeavouring to be a part of. Now, however, he was a literal prisoner of society, but he would not have to endure the labour camp to which he was now confined for too long as he was going to be punished further. For a man of adventure and excitement, however, for someone to whom stepping into the unknown would become a thing of habit, this presented a new opportunity to him. Quote, My fortune had changed. I was a prisoner. In about six months, however, a new light broke out over my unhappy existence, and an opportunity was afforded me of ultimately retrieving my character and acquiring freedom. This was the determination of the British government to found a penal settlement at Port Phillip, end quote. Port Phillip, by the way, is on the Victorian coast in the southeast of Australia, not that far from Melbourne, which you can find on a map. Buckley was to be sent to Britain's new territorial claims south of the equator. That giant land which the Dutch had called Zuidland since they had first set foot there in the early 1600s, but which, according to the British, had been discovered by Captain James Cook in 1770. As punishment for apparently stealing a cloth, Buckley was being sent to the other side of the world by the authority of the country for which he had fought. Yep, a cloth. As a prisoner, once he had served a term there, he would be granted the opportunity to become a free settler, or do whatever he wanted. Which, you know, for Europeans in Australia of the early 1800s, doing whatever you wanted was basically just trying not to die. So, in October, 1803, Buckley arrived in the bay of the new penal colony, which was named Sullivan Bay, and was set to work as a bricklayer. Those who had skills were deemed mechanics, and they were given far more freedom and latitude than other prisoners, since their range of work covered such a large area. They could not be restrained to within a patrollable perimeter. Buckley was put to work making a storage building and a magazine for the new colony, which to be honest, was not showing great signs for the chance of producing any kind of decent harvest. As the weeks went by, life in Sullivan Bay became steadily more and more difficult. Many of the tools that they had been provided to work with were shoddy. The temperature would fluctuate from cold to extreme heat suddenly and without warning. Huge thunderstorms would make work impossible, and the entire time, the men of the colony were extremely wary of the native people, who could be seen in huge numbers around their camp. There had been violence between the colonists and local Aboriginal people in the first days of the colony, after an attempt to trade with them had turned sour, and according to the Journal of the Reverend of the Colony, they had, quote, "...great reason to believe that they were cannibals," end quote. Exactly why they believed that, he does not explain. But still, you can imagine that it must have been a pretty frightening experience to be on the other side of the world from your home in a small camp on the edge of a huge continent surrounded by people who you think maybe want to eat you. Some prisoners attempted escape, only to return to the camp several days later, evidently deciding that the punishment they were going to receive was better than trying to live in such hostile conditions out in this foreign outback. Nobody stood any chance out there. Buckley, however, began to yearn for freedom. Just like he hadn't been able to bear being a bricklayer, nor a well-behaved soldier, neither could he bear living an indentured life, slaving away in the scorching summer heat for the crown which had taken away his liberty. He recounts that, quote, possessed of great personal strength, a good constitution, and having known what might be done by courageous men when combating for life and liberty, I determined on braving everything, and, if possible, making my escape. Perhaps my unsettled nature in great measure induced this, and that my impatience of every kind of restraint also led to the resolution. End quote. He resolved that his best course of action would be to escape and run away to Sydney, where he would be able to begin a new life. It quickly became apparent to the leader of the colony, Governor Collins, that the lack of resources, especially fresh water, meant that this settlement was doomed to fail. He too thus turned his attention to Sydney and sent a ship there to ask permission of the Governor of New South Wales to move their settlement to Van Diemen's land, modern-day Tasmania. Upon hearing that the colony was to pack up and leave the Australian mainland, Buckley knew that if he was ever going to fulfill his dream of getting to Sydney, this would be his last chance to do so. Along with three others, one of whom would be shot immediately upon their attempt, Buckley made his escape by using his relative freedom of movement, fleeing north along the coast and towards an area that would eventually be the location of a hipster's paradise called Melbourne. If there had been an audience of modern day Australians sitting and watching the troop disappear into the bush in February in the early 1800s, each and every one would give the lot of them absolutely Buckley's chance of surviving. They actually made a pretty hasty first day of it, covering enough distance to feel fairly safe that they had eluded the authorities. But it would have been absolutely shit. At that time of year, temperatures in that part of the world can reach the mid to high 40 Celsius, which, if you are using the Fahrenheit system of temperature measurement, is just really bloody hot, with a baking sun that roasts the skin so harshly that one can actually feel it happening as the skin cooks. Not long into escaping, the whole group knew that this whole endeavor was probably a terrible idea. Quote, the attempt was little short of madness, for there was before me the chance of being retaken, and probable death, or other dreadful punishment, or again, starvation in an unknown country, inhabited by savages, with whose language and habits I was totally unacquainted, besides the dangers innumerable, which the reader may in part imagine, but which no man can describe. By the merciful providence of God, I surmounted them all. End quote. It was not that long before his companions had decided they were going to bail and returned to the settlement. At one point, they were all actually able to see the ship Calcutta, which had brought them from England. It was moored in the bay. The others had tried for a time to get its attention, but failed to do so. Buckley, however, was his own man. No matter what his companions decided to do, he was not going back. The penal settlement may have been part of his own society, but he had never truly belonged within that society. He and his companions parted way after not too long. Quote, They determined on retracing their steps, and if possible, regaining their companions at the encampment. To all their advice, and entreaties to accompany them, I turned a deaf ear, being determined to endure every kind of suffering rather than again surrender my liberty. End quote. Buckley looked at the two possibilities and made a choice. If he returned to the penal colony, he would be punished. But at least he could imagine and reconcile himself with the outcome, coming as it would from within the familiar conditions of a social structure he knew and understood. Alternatively, he could turn his back on all of that, not forsake any of his liberty, and jump into the indeterminable future. There is no way that a European at this time could imagine what would face him in the Australian bush, but at least he would be facing that unknown as a free man. Quote, When I had parted from my companions, although I had preferred doing so, I was overwhelmed with the various feelings which oppressed me. It would be vain to attempt describing my sensations. I thought of the friends of my youth, the scenes of my boyhood and early manhood, of the slavery of my punishment, of the liberty I had panted for, and which, although now realized, after a fashion, made the heart sick, even at its enjoyment. End quote. A torn man was William Buckley. The authorities back in the nascent British settlement at Port Phillip gave Buckley, just as they would any escaped convict, absolutely zero chance to survive. Buckley's chance. This was reinforced when they packed up and left Port Phillip for Van Diemen's Land a bit over a month later, leaving him completely isolated from his former society. His first period in the bush was perilous, and a constant struggle for survival. He vaguely had a notion to make his way towards the settlement of Sydney, not really conceiving that it was nearly 900 kilometres, over 500 miles away, over a vast, diverse, and unyielding landscape. For an unknown period of time, Buckley followed the coast. Marking and knowing exactly the passage of time, is something that he soon discarded, and in his retelling is uncertain about how far he travelled or where he stayed and for what length of time. He had said he was willing to endure suffering, and this he most certainly did. His new life was a cycle of thirst, exposure, starvation, encounters with strange, new, and possibly deadly animals, and then rinse and repeat. At one point, on the brink of starvation... He collapsed at the end of a day, which had included walking, searching for food, having constant bouts of diarrhoea, licking dew off trees in an attempt to quench his thirst. He spent that night listening to the howling wild dogs, the dingoes, while shivering in the rain with no fire, certain that the next day would be his last. In that age-old question of how much liberty do you forsake for the security of a society, or vice versa, Buckley had gone full liberty, no society. He had nothing around him that was familiar or comforting. In fact, it turns out that liberty in the Australian bush in February can be bloody awful. He was basically living in Thomas Hobbes' state of nature, where life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Things became more tolerable, however, when he finally found a place with a fresh water and shellfish supply. Oh, and berries. He ate a shitload of berries that tasted like watermelons. Not so brutish after all, Mr. Hobbs. He put his building skills to work, and he fashioned a small hut where he stayed and recovered from the deprivations he had been through. So now, he wasn't immediately at risk of dying, but he was alone. He thinks it was several months that he remained in this spot, with all the shellfish and the watermelon berries, but all alone. He hadn't been looking for isolation, just freedom from societal restraint. Quote, I remember a fancy coming over me, that I could have remained at that spot all the rest of my life. But this solitary desire was but temporary, for, as it was never intended that man should live alone, so are implanted in his nature social feelings and thoughts instinctively leading to the comforts of home, be it ever so homely, and yearning for society, be it ever so humble." His first encounter with the indigenous inhabitants happened when he came across three aboriginal men, or rather, they came across him. After some time of shouting for his attention, They eventually approached him and made contact, each grabbing both his hands and beating their fists on his and their own chests. They started preparing a fire, and one of them went off to catch some crayfish. Just imagine what a massive culture shock this would have been. What kind of impression all of this would have had on a young European male who had fought in the Napoleonic Wars in Holland, and who now found himself alone close to death from thirst and exposure, while stumbling through a landscape and wilderness so very different from the green English pastures of Cheshire. His knowledge of the natives was limited, and attained through the lens of a 19th century European male. Now he was having his chest beaten in a collective greeting, and a fire was being prepared in front of him, while these totally strange people talked rapidly at him in a completely indecipherable tongue. He had gone into the unknown, and this was the least of what he would find. He was terrified that the fire was being prepared not just to cook crayfish, but also himself. The three men, however, he recounts, as having been nothing but courteous, even doling him out the largest portion of the divided food. He was always on edge, however, and after refusing their offers to come with him, as well as a suggested swap of some berries for his stockings, they left the berries anyway and carried on their way. Although this encounter with the Aboriginals was incomprehensible and confusing, he quickly began to regret not going with them. He had experienced his total liberty and found it lacking, and now he yearned for the comfort of contact with other human beings. Quote, Finding night coming on? Finding no fire to warm me and so dreary a prospect of the future without food of any kind, I began to repent having left the natives, and resolved on returning to their huts." End quote. After returning to where he'd met the men, he found that they had disappeared. He continued to the coast and found a cave above the tide line, in which to sleep for the night. He was startled, though, by a close encounter with what he called Sea Elephants seals. They came into the cave to join him, and in a panic, he engaged in an epic battle of who can startle whom the greater, and came out victorious, the seals fleeing his new domain. But again, Buckley was not looking for isolation, and the society of the seals was obviously not going to take him, so he continued on his way. The following day, he came across a mound of dirt, that appeared to be a fresh grave. Protruding from it was a spear, similar to those which his first Aboriginal companions had held. Buckley took the spear, because, well, why not, and proceeded to use it as a walking stick. Little did he know that this small action would be the catalyst for his integration into Aboriginal society. The spear had been that of the man buried in the grave, and it was this man's family... And the small tribe that he'd come from, the Buckley next met. It is extremely difficult to understand and generalize about life on the Australian continent before the invasion of Europeans. There was no single Aboriginal culture, language, or belief system. The population, thought to be around one million across the country, is also thought to have included around 300 different nations made up of innumerable tribes themselves made up of fluid and changing bands and family groupings. Languages and dialects differed, as would have specific customs, traits, and normalized behaviors. Whilst there were loose similarities, there were also great differences across all the people of this giant land. So when we talk about the local people in this story, the Wathurong of the Kulin Nation. Our conclusions shouldn't be taken to apply to all Aboriginal people. And once again, we are looking at his interactions with them purely through Buckley's own point of view. Some tribes believed that when a person died, their spirit would come back to life in the form of a white-skinned person. So when these people saw Buckley emerging from the direction in which they had buried their family member, called Maringurk, They saw a giant white man carrying Murrungurk's spear and believed that he was Murrungurk, returned from the dead. They cried with joy, danced, celebrated, cried some more, hugged and beat his and their and everybody's chest. The spear was all the proof they needed. And of this, Buckley said, To this providential superstition, I was indebted for all the kindnesses afterwards shown me. End quote. That evening, Buckley witnessed his first corroboree, an Aboriginal celebration ceremony, reveling in his arrival as the returned Murrungurk. This involved everybody painting themselves in specific patterns with different river clays, a huge fire being lit, and much dancing, rhythmic chanting and drumming, and much chess beating. The entire time, Buckley still had no idea what was going on, and the thoughts remained with him that he was about to be roasted alive. But much to his relief, after the ceremony, the rest of the tribe dispersed to their huts, leaving him unharmed, and he spent the night lying by the side of the family who had found him. Being the reincarnation of Murringurk, the deceased man's relations were transferred to Buckley. Brother, sister-in-law, nephew, he who could not speak a word of their language would have had absolutely no idea of what on earth was happening around him, but all of a sudden, he was now part of a family. His new family became obsessed with his safety, and he could not even wander off for more than a brief period before the tribe began to freak out, sending out search parties and crying with relief once they had located him again. He would remain amongst this group for a long time. Eventually, he learned their ways and language, He also became proficient in using their weapons and hunting. Quote, My not being able to talk with them, they did not seem to think at all surprising. My having been made white after death, in their opinion, having made me foolish. However, they took considerable pains to teach me their language, and expressed great delight when I got hold of a sentence, or even a word, so as to pronounce it somewhat correctly. They then would chuckle and laugh, and give me great praise. End quote. It's worth noting that despite the massive cultural differences between Buckley's world and that of the indigenous peoples, they looked after him and they protected him. His existence as their returned relative, whilst to him just a mere superstition, was to them as important as anything else. They opened their arms to him, seeing his differences as inconsequential. And it's pretty safe to say that without their help, He would not have been able to survive for so long. His story is one of cultural integration and acceptance in an age that would be remembered for its genocide and racism. Buckley's life gives a unique insight into a world that maybe might have been. However, it is important not to romanticize our views of Aboriginal society at the moment of first contact with the European settlers. Many modern-day people Perhaps out of a feeling of guilt for all the atrocities that were then committed against them, view Australian Aborigines as having been less warlike than, say, the American Indians or the Maori in New Zealand. Buckley's account of being the first European to encounter and spend significant time amongst the people in this area totally throws that notion into the wind. What we get from him... Are countless stories of brutal blood feuds, revenge killings, and group on group warfare. His retelling includes account after account of violence, often brutal and deadly, very often conducted in an act of retribution for some perceived slight, almost always involving women. Women. Used as an excuse for men to kill each other in every culture, on every continent, since forever. The people that he was amongst, according to him, were certainly warlike. And this from a man who had definitely seen war. Quote, I had seen skirmishing and fighting in Holland and knew something therefore of what is done when men are knocking one another about with powder and shot, in real earnest. But the scene now before me was much more frightful. Both parties looking like so many devils Turned loose from Tartarus, men and women were fighting furiously and indiscriminately, covered with blood. Two of the latter were killed in this affair, which lasted without intermission for two hours. The Waring was then retreated a short distance, apparently to recover themselves. After this, several messages were sent from one tribe to the other, and long conversations were held, I suppose on the matters in dispute. End quote. Much of his account at this stage goes over so many occasions of bloodshed from which he would either be told to remain apart by his adopted family, or protected from. We don't want to dwell on it, but there is one story that seems to give a good idea of how very different his adopted culture was from that which he'd run away from. Quote, Before we'd left this place, a beer or messenger came to us. He had his arms striped with red clay, to denote the number of days it would take to reach the tribe he had come from, and the proposed visit was for us to exchange with them eels for roots. The time stated for this march would be 14 days, and the place was called Bemongo, on the Barwon River. We carried fish in kangaroo skins, and reaching the appointed place of rendezvous, we found about 80 men, women and children gathered together. The exchange was made in this way. Two men of each party delivered the eel and the roots, on long sheets of bark, carrying them on their heads from one side to the other, and so on, until the bargain was concluded. In the evening, another great corroboree, and the next morning, a fight, because one of the women had run away with a man, leaving her husband. It resulted in her being speared very badly. After a short time, the tribes separated, making an appointment to meet again for an exchange of food. End quote. Meet, trade, party, fuck, fight, and organize to do it all again. He also gives an insight into the way that different tribes and groupings interacted with each other, often arranging tribal meetings and corroboraries for which to exchange goods, roots for eel or shellfish. These people lived in intimate relationship with the land, moving around it, using its resources before moving on, understanding the cyclical nature of constantly replenishing its bounty. You can't own what you are a part of. It's just really interesting to get an account of pre-European Aboriginal culture, of course to be taken with all the conditions that we've already outlined. So for year after year, Buckley lived amongst his adopted family, occasionally going for a walkabout contributing to the community with hunting and gathering. He learned the language and customs and acquired the skills necessary for this nomadic life. But he spoke of being sick from all the brutality that he bore witness to. And it seems that it was this brutality and the violence that ensured he would never truly belong to this adopted society that he had found. He had talked about the fear of being roasted and eaten alive when he first met the Aborigines. It is assumedly based on the stereotypes of natives that have been built up, founded on British and European experience in and around the Pacific. We're just going to leave what Buckley wrote about cannibalism here, as the following seems to sum up how this generally taboo behaviour was viewed and acted upon in the area where he lived. Quote, It is true they are cannibals. I have seen them eat small portions of the flesh, of their adversaries slain in battle." They appear to do this not for any particular partiality for human flesh, but from the impression that by eating their enemies, they would themselves become more able warriors. Many of them are disgusted with this ceremony, and refusing to eat, merely rub their bodies with the small portion of fat as a charm equally efficient. They also eat the flesh of their own children, to whom they had been much attached should they die a natural death. When a child dies, they place the body in an upright position, in a hollow tree, and allow it to remain there until perfectly dry, when they will carry it about with them." One day, while moving through the bush as part of a larger tribe made up of various smaller groupings that included his adopted family, sister, brother-in-law, and nephew, A man was bitten by a snake and died. A great ceremony was held for the highly esteemed man, after which the smaller groupings split off and went in various directions. Not long after, Buckley and his family were set upon by one such grouping, who believed that Buckley's brother-in-law possessed something to cause, or had made a curse that caused, the esteemed man to be bitten by the snake. They screamed and shouted at them from across the river, and in a sudden orgy of violence, Buckley's brother-in-law had a spear pierced right through his body. His sister and his nephew were also killed, and as he sat with his injured friend, he watched as the attacking band moved in to finish the job. His friend jumped up and thrust a final spear blow, before finally succumbing to weight of numbers. Buckley neither attacked nor was attacked for what could one man do against sixty, but now he had lost the people to whom he was the closest, and was now more alone than ever. Quote, I am not ashamed to say that for several hours my tears flowed in torrents, and that for a long time I wept unceasingly. To them, as I have said before, I was as a living dead brother whose presence and safety was their sole anxiety. Nothing could exceed the kindnesses these poor natives had shown me. And now they were dead, murdered by the band of savages I saw around me, apparently thirsting for more blood. Of all my sufferings in the wilderness, there was nothing equal to the agony I now endured. My feelings made me desperate, so that when a tall, powerful fellow came to the hut sometime after, to demand my friend Spears, I refused, in fierce language, to surrender them, so that he desisted. End quote. Over the following years, Buckley would still mix with familiar groupings and tribes, but he would not have a family again. He did get married, but he wasn't that into it. Apparently, as was wont to happen, she was taken away by some other men, to which Buckley responded by going to sea about getting her back, but his heart wasn't into it. And although he would have relations with other women and families, he realized that it was a cause of constant strife in this society, and one he would rather be without. Quote, I had almost given up all hope of ceasing savage life. And as a man accustoms himself to the most extraordinary changes of climate and circumstance, so I had become a wild inhabitant of the wilderness, almost in reality. End quote. Yet despite this feeling of isolation from his former life and world, reminders of it began to reappear along the coast. Other groups that he had met told him of ships lying in the bay, and he even met one carrying a flag that had been purloined from a ship. Ropes, bottles, and other European goods all became evidently more accessible to these nomadic peoples, and were highly valued by them. He even found some stuff himself like a barrel covered in iron hoops. Quote, Having broken up the iron hoops into pieces, I some days after divided them amongst those who were most kind to me, and by these presents added greatly to the influence I had already acquired over them. Whether being so long with them was the occasion or not, but I began to fancy that they were gradually becoming more docile and civilized. End quote. This is an interesting point in Buckley's narrative. Whether the idea of civility remained with him during his time in the bush, or whether it was something that he reacquired when he did eventually return, is impossible to know. But a question worth keeping in mind. Perhaps it was inevitable, or perhaps just coincidental, but the two worlds of Buckley's existence were about to collide, with him in the center of it. Upon meeting two young native men, one of whom had a European handkerchief attached to his spear, Buckley heard that they had encountered an encampment of white people on the beach, having witnessed a boat drop them off and leave. The young men had exchanged some small gifts with them, but these white people, who obviously were not any relatives returned from the dead, had a lot of stuff, things like axes and useful metal. So, the young men had decided to fetch greater numbers, and they were going to attack the encampment, kill the white people, and plunder. At this point, Buckley was fed up with all this shit. He had borne witness to countless fights, attacks, and various acts of violence for years, and now felt compelled to warn the Europeans on the beach of their impending doom. However, whether he agreed with it or not, he was also attached to this society their customs and behaviours. He knew that to warn the Europeans would be to betray those who had become his people. After travelling for a few days in the direction from whence the boys had come, he came across the European encampment. Can you imagine how this must have felt? Seeing your own people after who knows how long? You can't? Well, you don't need to imagine it because Buckley tells us, quote, at length, I arrived in sight of a long pole or staff with the British colours hoisted upon it, and there I also saw a sort of camp. I was now overwhelmed with feelings connected with the past, the present, and the future. My being an absconder from the operations of the sentence imposed upon me by the authorities, and the consequences of having so done, the present with reference to my then unmistakable liberty and perfect freedom from all such consequences. And, as to the future, there was what before me? Captivity? And probable punishment? Who could tell? End quote. Okay, now imagine being the Europeans, sitting there on the beach, maybe thinking about chucking a steak onto the barbie, and out of the bush steps a six and a half foot tall white guy, unkempt, unshaven, and unable to speak of their language. They just smiled and gave him a Vegemite sandwich. They didn't. They didn't do that. That didn't happen. Vegemite didn't exist yet. But yeah, Buckley came up to this group, who would have sat there agape at this weird and huge figure who sat himself down next to them. After a while, one of them approached him and began asking questions, but Buckley had not heard or spoken English since he had parted ways with his companions so long ago and he was unable to comprehend anything that anyone said. After a short back-and-forth game of what the fuck are you on about, one of them offered him a Vegemite-less bread roll, which he absolutely smashed, and apparently it was the word bread that started to roll around in his head and kick his brain into gear. With his English coming back to him, he started to relay his experiences and what he'd been up to. He made up a story about being shipwrecked and the only survivor. Interestingly, after all these years, he was still worried about being punished for his escape. He showed them his arm, where his his initials had been tattooed, WB, followed by a sun, moon, and a small creature. You can see this tattoo on our website, stuffwhatyoutellme.com. In response, the Englishman relayed to him that they had come to Port Phillip to purchase land, bringing with them seven Aborigines from Sydney to act as interpreters, and showed him a deed, whereby they had bought about 600,000 acres of land in the area, and the marks where local chiefs had consented to the purchase. This troubled Buckley immensely because he knew that the Aboriginals from Sydney could not speak the same language as those here, so would not be able to explain what was actually happening. He also knew that the tribes had no chiefs who held any special claim over the soil, nor had they any concept of ownership or quantified value of land, other than as hunting grounds. He said, quote, I therefore looked upon the land dealing spoken of as another hoax of the white man, to possess the inheritance of the uncivilized natives of the forest, whose tread on the vast Australian continent will very soon be no more heard, and whose crimes and sorrows are fast fading away amongst other recollections of the past. End quote. In his unique position, right in the middle of this literal head-on collision of cultures, Buckley found himself having to play the role of a diplomat. He was able to convince the hostile Aborigines that if they waited to attack the encampment, waited until the boat returned, they would have all the more to plunder. This delayed them for a few days, but soon they returned and even threatened Buckley that if he did not assist them in the attack, they would kill him too. One of the Englishmen in the camp, a guy named William Todd, kept a journal in which he wrote, quote, at about 8 o'clock, all the natives, the Sydney Aborigines who were also at the camp, came running to our fire, told us that there was a mob of blacks coming down to kill both us and them. They made signals for us to shoot them. We told them that we should not let one of them be hurt. And Buckley cried out, We shoot them! We shoot them! End quote. Buckley knew that they were in the most vulnerable of positions, so he armed himself with a gun and and threatened to kill the first native to raise a hand against the Europeans. He promised them that when the boat returned, they would have presents in abundance, and at this, they were placated. When Buckley spotted the ship returning a few weeks later, he recalled that, quote, I lost no time in giving the pleasing intelligence to both parties. As for the natives, they made great rejoicings, jumping round and round me in the wildest manner, tapping me on the shoulders to show their delight at my not having deceived them, and of course, at the arrival of the expected presence. End quote. Wealthy Europeans were once again investing in this area for grazing lands and free settlement. Eventually, it would become the colony of Victoria, and it was under the financial and actual leadership of a rich guy with a pretty awesome name, John Batman. But of course, we're going to call him Batman. He set up what was called the Port Phillip Association, operating from the more established settlement in Van Diemen's land, Tasmania. Their mission was to expand into the mainland. They didn't really have permission to be claiming land, but they had a lot of money, and also didn't necessarily not have permission. It was the Port Phillip Association that had, according to the document that Batman had, had written up, acquired the 600,000 acres of land from the unknowing natives. This document is actually the only example of any settlers giving any prior recognition of the natives' rights to the land in Australia. It was also made null and void by the New South Wales governor only a couple of months later, since the British government didn't recognize any Aboriginal claims to the land on the continent. Batman was also the one who founded what would become the center of Melbourne, writing in his diary at the time that, quote, this will be a place for a village, end quote. He then declared the land, Batmania. That's right. Melbourne was originally called Batmania. On a personal note, look, my passport says, place of birth, Melbourne. Why? Why could it not have instead stayed the original name and said, Batmania? Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Okay, sorry. When all of this happened, it marked the beginning of Buckley's transition into the next phase of his life. The exploration of what would become the state of Victoria was underway. And one of its most prominent surveyors was a guy called John Helder Wedge, who worked for Batman. Like Robin. Buckley came into contact with both Batman and Wedge. The two cultures established camp on the beach, and Buckley became the intermediary between the two groups. Buckley didn't want to leave the camp, worried the conflict would arise in his absence that he may otherwise prevent. Batman also quickly identified him as a valuable resource and advisor on how to deal with the natives. He asked him which presence would be most valued by them, to which Buckley answered, bread, so at once biscuits were distributed to the aboriginals, and a great corroboree was held, much to the delight of the English. Buckley must have felt like he was able to trust Wedge, because he confided in him that he was in fact an escaped prisoner from the Calcutta. Wedge asked him how long he thought he had gone bush, which he reckoned it must have been about 20 years. When calculations were done, it was realized that from the moment he had stumbled blindly into the unknown, away from a life of penal servitude, from the moment Buckley, not for the first time in his life, had stood up against his overarching authority, face and middle fingers raised to the sky, and said, Stuff you! From that moment, 32 years had gone by. 32 years! At this point, he had spent over half of his life amongst the Aborigines of Australia's southeast. Wedge promised Buckley that he would do everything he could to help him secure a pardon and ask his assistance in exploring the area which they had just purchased. Buckley led the English on an expedition around the land which he had lived in for 32 years with Wedge taking detailed surveyings of the area. Wedge was delighted at the pastoral and agricultural resources Buckley showed him, and even named a waterfall Buckley Falls in gratitude to him. Whenever they came across Aboriginal people, Buckley was instructed to tell them that if they visited the settlement, they would be given presents of blankets or knives. They also demonstrated their firearms, which roused dread in the Aboriginal men. Buckley had prevented them from attacking the Europeans when they were still hugely outnumbered and outarmed, this was not going to be possible anymore. The European invasion was fully underway, and the might of the British Empire was not something that many people around the world would be able to repel. As more settlers arrived, more land was claimed. The two world views came to constant confrontation. European hunting diminished Aboriginal food supply which was supplemented by the natives spearing and eating the sheep and cattle that were being brought in to farm. This was, of course, theft in the eyes of the British, and treated as such in accordance with British law, which was totally foreign to the Aborigines. Over the 18 months that followed his reappearance, Buckley never properly belonged to either of the two cultures, as they began their first steps together on what would become a torrid path. Working with the British, especially in search of people missing in the interior, he could never fully integrate back into the ways of his birth society, even though he was pardoned and received flattering testimonial for his work helping the settlers. The whites that he showed around were often surprised and suspicious of how much love and happiness the native people all around the area would greet him with, but he also came across many natives who resented the fact that he had left their way of life and was helping the free settlers. Disenchantment for Buckley once again set in. He knew intimately the ways of the native people. He also knew intimately the power behind European militarism and the process of colonization, and how unstoppable it would be. The breaking point for him came when he saw how native people could be locked up and charged with crimes that they obviously did not commit, purely on the testimony of disgruntled white settlers. Many Aboriginal people had taken to helping the Europeans unload goods from ships. One such enterprising fellow was paid by a local carpenter with a worn-out shirt and trousers as a reward for his help. When this guy went down to the docks a few days later, when the next ship from Van Diemen's Land had arrived, he was clad in his English clothes, and he no doubt looked pretty strange. A sailor on the boat swore that these clothes belonged to a man who was missing and presumed murdered. So the Aboriginal guy was locked up and thrown in the local jail. Buckley was horrified that the Englishman's accusal, which had absolutely no evidence to back it up, was given so much more weight than the protestations of the Aborigine. When Buckley was able to find the carpenter a few days later, who testified that actually what the aboriginal man had said was true, then the aboriginal man was released. But still, to Buckley, the ambivalence and disregard of the authorities towards the aborigines was ample proof, quote, of the danger at that time arising out of false information in any matter where the natives were concerned, end quote. Few people paid him any heed or trust. To the Aboriginals, he was English. To the English, he was an Aboriginal. Sick of what he was seeing in this changing world around him, Buckley eventually sought greener pastures and again set sail from the known confines of the world he was living in. He set out to Van Diemen's Land and the settlement of Hobart. In Hobart, this fledgling town in the southeast of Van Diemen's Land, People were eager for news of how the settlement was going under the Port Phillip authority on the mainland. Remembering that Buckley was around 200 centimeters tall, he would have been a highly noticeable figure, wandering the streets and thinking about how he would face this altogether new world. Only two years before, he had been three decades into eating witchetty grubs and trading eels for roots. Now he had to figure out what to do with himself. One day he was invited to the theatre, and when there, one of the actors approached him and asked if he would like to come in the next day and perform also on stage. Buckley consented to come, but he committed himself to nothing. When he arrived the following day, he found that the stage manager had been raising publicity, inviting all and sundry to come witness the great, Anglo-Australian giant. To the stage manager's dismay, Buckley told them to go and get stuffed and left. He applied to the governor of the colony for a plot of land, but although he was well-received and thanked for his service in expanding the knowledge of Britain's new acquisitions, a plot of land he was not granted. He was, though, given employment as a gatekeeper, and when made redundant after a time, given a meagre pension for which he noted he was extremely grateful. He came to know a family of three with a little daughter, but tragically the husband was killed by a native when returning from a trip to the mainland. So he made that typical 19th century pre-tinder move, and wooed, then married the wife, so as to, you know, provide for her and her young, fatherless infant. His new wife was extremely short, in fact so short that she had to tie a cloth to his arm and to hers, which would hold hers up as they walked along so that they could affect the nature of a couple walking arm in arm. It beggars belief that if you had been walking around Hobart in the 1840s, you may have seen a couple walking arm in arm by rope attachment. Her basically a tiny person of around four foot, and he a giant of over six and a half. There actually ain't no more belief to be asked for, to even possibly consider, that the giant in this couple, had, over the course of his life, worked as a bricklayer in England, fought in the Napoleonic Wars in Holland, sailed across the world as a convict, escaped from imprisonment, survived the extremities whilst lost in the Australian bush, integrated amongst people from the world's oldest civilization, forgotten his own language only to relearn it, and once again re-emerged into something more similar to the world he had been born into, but then also altogether different. Since we have no more belief, you will just have to trust us when we tell you about how William Buckley's astonishing life finally came to an end. When the great feared inevitability of death, that which his life had skirted around so many times, finally came to meet him. It happened when he fell out of his horse cart, whilst riding near Hobart at the ripe old age of 76. He, who had resisted the conventions of his day, and of people all around the world, could not avoid the conventions of gravity and force. Rest in peace, William Buckley. In telling his story, we have, in accordance with our own personal spirits of adventure, excitement, rebellion, and the idea of sticking it to the man, of course romanticized Buckley's life. That's what we do when it comes to social rebellion. But as we spoke about at the start of this episode, There is also the real-life approach or perception of social rebellion. It turns out that at the point of telling of his immense life of riotous dissipation and of leaping off into the realms of the unknown and the uncertain, older Buckley was not such a fan of what younger Buckley had done. In fact, if older Buckley had been able to talk to younger Buckley, he would have tried to dissuade him from making the decisions and taking the actions that he did. So apparently, even Buckley would have given Buckley Buckleys. Quote, My narrative is now at its close. Let its details of dangers and privations serve as a moral to the young and reckless, to all who, passing unheeded the admonitions of parents, guardians, and friends rush heedlessly on the future, with all its trials and consequences, occasioning many bitter pangs to those who would instill into their minds motives of action founded on religion and propriety. The want of these, or rather the abandonment of them, by me in early life, led to the sufferings I endured in after years, some of which I have here endeavoured faithfully to portray. There are two things that strike us here at Stuff What You Tell Me regarding this story of William Buckley. The first, in the end, although he had little reason for hope at so many and various times in his life, Buckley did survive to live a full and wholesome life. We have no idea how he truly felt about this life At the time of his death, four years after he had recounted it to John Morgan. But we only hope that he found some fulfillment in the fact that he must probably have seen and done more than 99.9% of all people who have ever or will ever live. Buckley's chance should arguably mean the opposite from what it does. It could easily be that smallest sliver of chance that allows you to succeed despite seemingly insurmountable odds. The second and the final thing is that had the younger Buckley done as the older Buckley wished and taken a straighter and more narrow path through life there would have been absolutely Buckley's chance that we, 200 years later, would even know his name. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. We'd love to hear what you think about William Buckley's life on our Facebook, facebook.com slash stuffwhatyoutellme. Are there other morals or lessons that can be learned from what we've heard that he went through? Or are there stories that you know of from where you come from? Similar, where people have left everything behind and followed their hearts and their feelings of riotous dissipation let us know on facebook and also on twitter at the stuff U team until next episode farewell from this citizen of batmania This has been a production by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani.